On this week's episode, we welcome Lorian Finney. From Baltimore, Maryland, as we look at the beautiful Baltimore Harbor, there's a dark story that goes on in Baltimore that is rarely reported, underreported, and it's about kids who are homeless, find themselves in four or five different high schools before they graduate. Who takes care of them, provides for them, gives them leadership, help them understand right from wrong? Who gives them hope for the future? We tell you the stories today about homeless kids. And joining us now is Lorian Finney, who is a lawyer, a power broker, philanthropist, and who's really uh, has been on the cutting edge of giving these kids relief. I appreciate you joining us, but I also appreciate you not only for the work that you do, but how you get other young men involved in the community, helping these nomad kids who without you guys would probably be dead or incarcerated somewhere. But talk about these kids um, in the early years of their lives and what happens to get them to a place where they become homeless, displaced, given up on, become just a number and a click, a money click for institutions, even the educational system. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Uh, and by the grace of God, that could be you, that could be me. These kids are coming up in Baltimore, some sections uh, amidst trauma, uh, whether it's a single family, uh, single parent household, and they're just trying to survive. And when you're in survival mode, that survival mode really starts at 10, 11, 12, and you're trying to figure out, one, how do I get to school? If I'm in the home with one parent or no parent at all at the particular time, how do I eat? How do I have shelter? How do I have electricity? So from a young age, these folks are really surviving in a manner that is not a custom or, or, or the norm for most folks in society. And that's where you have to have some empathy because if it was you or me thrust into one of those situations, how would we survive? And by the grace of God, we have been able to have resources and support systems, and that's what at Joy Baltimore, we're fortunate that whether we grab them at 14, 15, 16, that we can give them a wraparound uh, system that can be getting them on the right track. Obviously, parenting is very important. Church is important. Having an education to give people self-worth is important. Mentors are important. At what age do they really start getting off track? What contributes to this? And I'm sure you've seen kids early on that could have been on the same trajectory, but for some reason they were saved and rescued. It is luck. It is, it is faith. Um, there is no easy shotgun answer. So uh, I can, you know, kids that grow up in Cherry Hill, if there was not the sports person at the recreation center who really took a liking or interest in that kid to make sure they were in school, if they needed toiletries, that kid could have went left. Right, so it's really, it's a, a evolution of just a ton of things that plague not only Baltimore City, but our country where folks are under-resourced. Uh, the education system is not really set up to provide a stable uh, environment. Um, so, and it's a totality of all of those things. And these kids, some have their endurance to get through and continue to move forward. It is really a crapshoot. And those kids that make it through are really soldiers and I really applaud. And those that have fallen through the cracks, it is our duty to try to catch as many as we can to give them the resources that they need. So we decided to ask um, 
um, Laron Finney to come back and join us. He had an opportunity to listen to what um, Lonnie Walker had to say. And I wanted to bring you back to talk about the programs you have in place. How do you respond? What you've heard? How are you giving people hope that you have systems in place in terms of the skills, giving them stability? I mean, because I'm sure these kids are exposed to crime. You're talking about kids prostituting on poles, people stealing. What have you, how have you responded to this? I'm very proud of Lonnie. I need to say that. And whether he's out canvassing at night, because that's when you really see what the homeless population is. It's not from 3 to 6. It's really from 12 to 6 a.m. where these kids are populating the city. So he's canvassing their referrals. And what he does, he puts them through an accountability process not judging, not saying what they should be doing, but he's meeting these kids where they are and he's giving them a roadmap of what it looks like to be successful. And it's not always about monetary success, it's about how do you respect yourself as a human being? How do you take accountability for where you are and pushing yourself forward? And exposing them to different parts of Baltimore. Like this is Baltimore, where we're sitting right now. But if you look at the narrative across the media framework, Baltimore is not represented like this. So we're intentionally bringing 20 kids today to the Sagamore Pendry Hotel. They're going to have lunch. They're going to flow housing applications to begin normalizing what expectations should be. And we're big proponents. When you walk out, typically your day starts in neutral. And how you move is either going to become positive or negative. And we become expect products of our expectations. And I think that's the life line that Lonnie has built with Joy Baltimore. If those that are watching this show nationally and locally want to support what you're doing financially, how do they do so? They go right to joybaltimore.org and they will see lists of all the programs. And I like to say strategies because programs come and go. They're driven by dollars. I think Lonnie is driven by providing a roadmap for these kids. But joybaltimore.org has all the information, all the strategies and resources that we provide these kids. Um, and again, it's about chasing opportunity for the kids. I think a lot of these nonprofits, quite frankly, we spoke about this earlier, are chasing dollars. They're not really chasing solutions for these kids. And I'm proud to say that's what Lonnie is doing with Joy Baltimore. Laurent, well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for making this possible and setting an example of what we need to do to make a difference in a child's life. So let me welcome Derek, who also works with Lorian, who really is the ground person, the nuts and bolts, who really work with these kids day in and day out and does a yeoman job. And just before we sat down with Derek, you could see the respect and the trust that he's developed with these kids. We know it's so difficult to develop that kind of trust because these kids really have trust issues after being so damaged by lack of fathers in the household and what society has made them become. And, and so we just appreciate you, Derek, joining us. So Derek, I know you're taking us to this homeless camp. It's nothing like what people have seen before. It would be shocking for people to see how these kids live, how they survive. And it's just amazing to see. You would think that you're in some third world country when you see um, these shelters that Derek is taking us to. We're in um, you know, one of uh, Baltimore's most forgotten places, 30 seconds away from the water, literally. And this is a, this is a homeless colony. We're here during the day right now, and uh, as you can see, it's empty. And that's why we chose to come here, because we don't want to interrupt their lives, because this is where they live. But this is not how we should live. We have to do better, uh, not only as a city, not only as a state, but we have to do better as a country, right? Um, 
One of the things about Joy Baltimore is we try to capture young people before they get to this point. Before they get to the point where they've been uh, living in an encampment uh, for an extended period of time. We want to get them, we want to get them attached to services. Uh, we want to get them attached to resources. We want to understand their mental health state. We want to understand it, are they connected with anybody or anything. And if they are connected with anybody or anything, we want to make that reconnection. And if we don't get a grip on this thing now, especially with our homeless youth population, um, Lord knows this could potentially be uh, the entire city. This is uh, another small aspect of Baltimore, but a very real aspect of Baltimore. There are approximately 3,000 homeless youth in the city of Baltimore any, on, on any given night. So we uh, position ourselves to um, just help them, gu help guide them to safety. You know, um, Derek Chase, uh, we're sitting here as we look out at the beautiful water of Baltimore. Remind us of the rich history of Baltimore. Oh man, Baltimore is uh, special to, to America. Uh, when you think about 1776, and in particular the War of 1812, the Star Spangled Banner, when you look over that water right there, you'll see Fort McHenry. That's where the ships were, where the Star Spangled Banner was actually written on. So um, you can't tell American history without telling Baltimore's history. And Baltimore had so many firsts. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, one of the greatest firsts is the first public work system. All the underground things that happened, the working, the pipe work, uh, flushing toilets. This is Baltimore. Baltimore brought that to you, world. Um, one of the greatest accomplishments uh, of America is during the height of slavery, 1850. Baltimore, that was a slave-holding city, had 25,000 free men and women. That's unheard of in, in any part of America. And the question becomes, how could it, in 1850, there was a fight and a quest for freedom that we still have the opportunity to continue to cultivate and enjoy today. So Baltimore helped give us this quest for freedom in America that we know. You know, I'm a little shocked you've not mentioned that Baltimore was New York before there was New York. Oh, yeah, Baltimore yeah. is one of the greatest port cities in America. It is a shipping magnet. It's a shipping magnet, the greatest, the deepest inland seaport. Uh, it's right here in Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore outside of Long Island, I mean Long Beach, California. Uh, most of your vehicles that come into America come into America right through these ports right here. And Baltimore also played a, a strategic history in civil rights. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you think of some of the some of the, the, the great Thurgood Marshall, um, the NAACP, uh, uh, in terms of how it was organized, the headquarters, the, the headquarters right here in Baltimore. Yes. Yeah, we've we've been we've been at this a long time. It's a, the, the quest for the American dream. And you know that's a good segue. And when you think about the quest for the American dream, you look at these waters, you look around us. Everything seems so perfect, but yet there are kids that are homeless, live on the streets, lost. You guys provide a support system to find them. You know, uh, how do we change it so everybody have an opportunity to experience not just the American dream, but a stable life, um, education and and entrepreneurship that they can pass on to future generations. So it's not always the narrative is about crime and homelessness and neglect and the lack of parenting and juvenile delinquency. Uh, you know, like anything, the first thing that I say is look at the assets. Um, Baltimore has always had an entrepreneurial spirit. 
when we talked about in 1850, uh, they weren't just 25,000 free men and women, they were a lot of entrepreneurs. So Baltimore has always been a city where you had to learn to cultivate some particular product or service and take it to the marketplace. When all of the jobs fled, Bethlehem still and the other uh, things happened, uh, they left Baltimore vacant in terms of the opportunity. So when you, when you peel back the onion of Baltimore, what you see and what you sense, even in the youth, in particular the squeegee kids, is you see this desire for freedom, this desire for entrepreneurship, this desire for independence. These are the fundamental things that are taught at Harvard. These are the fundamental things that are taught at Stanford, MIT. What we have to do to answer your question is that we have to hone in on Baltimore's great assets. We need the attention, the national attention, and then we take the resources. We have uh, uh, one of the other things that Baltimore has a plethora of is universities. We have perhaps the greatest university in the, in the world, John Hopkins University, right here in the city of Baltimore. All right, we have one of the greatest HBCUs in the country, Morgan State University. So when we're talking about how we fix this problem, we're gonna take ins private institutions, public institutions, with community assets, and then we create a force field around them and we wedge them together and create a formula for success, a formula for success that then can be implant imported all around the world because that's what Baltimore's known for, the city of first. And, and despite what we may see and the sadness of these kids that we have been talking about, you still see that they're the future of America. It lies in there. I was a kid, grew up poor, you know? Uh, I grew up uh, in one of the poorest parts of Baltimore, uh, Park Heights, uh, 21215. Park Heights leads in murder, uh, it leads in uh, 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 delinquency, uh, it leads in uh, deplorable housing, it leads in every statistical category. But if you ask any of the kids who live there, how do you feel? They would tell you they feel great. They feel, they'll tell you that they feel fine. They'll tell you that they feel strong. They'll tell you that they feel invigorated by the opportunity that poverty presents. So the only way to come out of poverty is to build up something internally that drives you out of poverty. And what we'll find, again, as we peel back the onion, is that we'll see that a lot of these kids, all their, their conditions are deplorable, and they shouldn't be. The systems that are responsible for uh, uh, shaping the wellness should be there. However, those kids, they have not uh, uh, allowed these systems to dim their internal light. And that's what we fight for. And how do we return these kids to faith, morality, understanding right and wrong and the consequences? I say three things. First thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge them, all right? They have to acknowledge us, we have to acknowledge them. Say, we see you, all right? And then we draw them in and we say, who do you need to forgive? Because a lot of times the conditions that they're facing all right, are horrific, and as a result of them facing horrific things, they have done horrific things. So then we also offer them the opportunity to forgive themselves. You need to forgive yourself. And last but not least, after we give the, the, the healing element that comes through forgiveness, we present an opportunity. We present leadership. What we are missing in Baltimore is not strong leadership, but we need the lenses of, of, of American media to find those who are worthy of being led. And I think the challenge in Baltimore, as the challenge in other parts of the country, is sometimes we focus on the wrong leaders. We focus on leaders who send us in the wrong direction, instead of sending us towards hope, instead of sending us towards destiny. There's something called manifest destiny that still exists. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's teach that in a way 
where children can say, wait a minute, the world can be mine? Oh yeah, the world can be yours. It still can be yours, all right? But you have to go through those processes first. Thank you so much for joining now, us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> and I'm glad, because you know what? There's always a teachable moment. Yes, sir. No matter how far we rise or how low we may get, there's always someone that can teach us. And we're willing to listen. And we are, we are so glad to have you in Baltimore. You are, when we talk about what's good for Baltimore, I'm Sean Williams is good for Baltimore. <laughs> you make me blush. <laughs> well, anyhow, thank you for joining me, brother. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the Armstrong Williams Show on the beautiful harbor of Baltimore, Maryland. Where sadness is here, but glory is also here. Success. Yes, there's glory. The sun still rises in Baltimore. As long as the sun still rises, there's hope. Thank you for joining us. You know, Joy Baltimore is the organization that makes this all happen. And the title is so appropriate because if you ask these kids what brings them joy, what brings them happiness, what gives them a sense of security and peace, they will tell you Joy Baltimore. You're at the drop-in center for Joy Baltimore on 2116 North Charles Street. Um, one of my mentees who's 24 years old named Tremaine Moore, he owns a video gaming truck. And this is his video gaming truck. He bought it out today to celebrate with the youth. So um, our drop-in center is open Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday um, because of limited funding and we don't have staff to support the rest of the week. Uh, we meet every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday from 4 to 7. And people can come in and do whatever they want. We got resources for them. And today is National, HIV, youth, National Youth HIV Awareness Day. And so we're having a little party in honor of that. And we're giving out clothing, supplies, and anything else that young people, any, anybody in the neighborhood would need or want. The stuff go like this. And I told the staff, put it out there because it's for the people. That's what we do. You know, we, we get the stuff and it goes to the community. And so this work is done with community coming together and other grassroots programs coming together and organizations coming together. And Joy Baltimore, we are out here doing what we do. And the person behind Joy Baltimore, who's really the hands-on person, is our guy Lonnie, who's joining us now. And Lonnie, Lonnie, thank you for what you do and welcome to the broadcast. Lonnie Wayne Walker is joining us from the beautiful city of Baltimore on the harbor. And our discussion today centers around homeless children. Um, welcome to the broadcast. Tell us about your organization. Um, my organization, we call Joy Baltimore. Joy stands for Just Our Youth. We're an outreach organization for runaway, homeless, and displaced youth, but they focus on the LGBTQ community, where we serve all youth between the ages of 13 and 24. And the magical thing about 24 is with Joy Baltimore, you don't age out. Help us understand, uh, and you can use a kid as an example, just how the homelessness worked for these kids. Mm. What age they get kicked out of their home. It can start as early as 16. 16? It can start as early as 16 from what I've come across. And what happens is, um, for the most part, what happens is um, if, you, if you were in foster care or you're aging out of the foster care system, you may fall into homelessness that way. But for, for the most part, from what, I'm, what I've seen since I've been here in Baltimore, is we have this thing where young people turn 16, 17, and the magical number of 18 years of age, and they think that they're adults. So where are these 16-year-old kids coming from? Some of them come from home. Their parents want them out? Some of them come from home because they can't follow the rules. And the, the golden rule is if you can't follow the rules in my house, then you don't have to be here. And so when they come into the program and you ask them, you know, what's going on, they'll give you all of these excuses and you ask, well, can I call the parent? Because at the end of the day, a 16-year-old is still considered a minor. 
So we're still gonna have to have a conversation with the parent because for me, reunification is everything, especially if it's a safe environment. And so when you speak to the mother, the grandmother, or the guardian, you come to find out there's other things going on. And then you ask the question, well, can we step in and we can wrap some services around the whole family? And will this child be able to go back home if we, if we do that? So I have kids who are in my program who, you must come here every day so you have a place to lay your head at night. So what are the matrix that determine whether a child is homeless or not? The matrix that determine whether a child is homeless, under the federal government, homeless is um, described as being on, being on the street for three years or more, um, or couch surfing. But to be, to be as far as critically homeless, you have to be homeless at least three years. So where do these kids sleep at night? Um, what they call the abandoned, they call, call them abandonments. They will sleep at friend's house, which is called couch surfing, um, tents down at the harbor. Um, some of them are 19 or 18 and they look like they're 32. And then when you sit down and have a conversation with them, because they've been out there so long, they age. What do you think ultimately these kids are looking for? Um, love, love. It shows up in different forms. Um, I talk very greasy to the kids. I, I, I talk very straight to them, very direct. But I do it in love and they know, they know where I'm coming from. And I also hold them accountable. But don't you also think that many of them are looking for a male figure? <laughs> yes. I try not to take the place of their parent because I'm not your parent. But if I can provide you with the support that you need as a black man, I will provide you with those supports. But I don't want to come in because what will happen later on down the line is when they get upset, you're not my father. And, and correctly, I'm not. But I am going, and, and I, I want, I honestly, and I tell the kids all the time, I want you to be upset with me at times. I want you to be mad. I want you to take that anger and frustration out on me because if you're not taking it out on, on something, you're gonna take it out on the wrong thing. And it's gonna end you up in jail. And that's where the mental health piece come, in, come into place. How do you support so many with very little resources? My community. Um, the community wraps their arms around Joy Baltimore. They wrap their arms around Joy Baltimore. They love on us. They provide us with supplies that we need for the young people. Um, relationships, like we're here today at the Sagamore Pingry, and they're providing lunch for my young people. How many of these kids between the ages of 16 to 24 would you categorize, according to the federal guidelines, as homeless? According to the federal guidelines, whew, if I had to say out of 100, 55. 55? If I have to say, if 100 young people were standing in front of me. Half? Yes. Over half? Over, a little over half, yes. That's but do, do they use the word homeless? No. They don't want to, no young person wants to identify or use the word homeless. They don't, they don't like the word, they don't, it, don't, it don't connect with them. So when you say homeless, they're not gonna come in. So, so finally, if these kids grew up in households that were stable, loving parents who made education a priority, and these kids did not find themselves on the street, how much would that impact crime in this city, um, juvenile delinquency in this city, incarceration in this city, sexual trafficking in this city? How, would it, how much would it impact the crisis that Baltimore and other cities face from juveniles. If they had stability, it would decrease those numbers immensely. It would decrease because they would be occupied. 
They would have things to do. They would have jobs with livable wages. No one wants to do the things that they're doing, but sometimes it's survival. It is survival. If I'm going to the store and I'm selling Pampers, I can't eat Pampers, but I know that my baby needs diapers. So some of these kids have kids. Oh, yes. Many of them. Many of them. Some of them have more than one child. I have one young lady who has four kids at the age of 18. So kids are, yes, that's real. Now where's daddy? He's nowhere to be found because he doesn't know how to be a daddy because he didn't have a daddy to be a daddy for him. How many different schools do you think in their education experience could a kid end up in before they graduate? I've had one young man who's been in four different schools before he got to the 12th grade. Four different schools? Four different schools. And did he learn anything? And not, not only did he not learn anything, he still has not graduated. He's not graduated. And now he's 24 years old and still doesn't have a high school diploma. And even went through Job Corps. What about providing skills, training, carpentry, welding? So even though they may not be able to do well in the academic setting, they can use their hands and their creativity in other ways to create opportunities for themselves. But if you can't stimulate them with the education piece and you don't, and that's a requirement to get that trade, they can't get there then. How many of these kids end up in jail or end up dead? Oof, you said dead. I, I, I literally, a couple years ago, I buried a young man um, who was here in the city, 19 years old, who they found in the harbor over near Rusty Scuppers. Um, they said suicide, and just the day before, he had just got out of Sinai, and I was his, his point of contact. Um, it was the hardest thing to do to bury somebody else's child. Um, it, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I reached out to several other organizations to, um, to help get this young man buried because the city was actually getting ready to cremate the body. Um, I still didn't believe it was gone. Um, I was told by one agency, well, is the city going to do what they do? Let them do what they do. Why do, why do you care? Because he's somebody's child. But you do care. Yeah. Um, and I, I literally dedicate my drop-in center to him. Um, his, his nickname was Cochise. You know, and I, and I say, say his name. Um, he was a, little, a young rapper who touched many people in the city. And when I did a memorial service for him, there were people that came out of the woodworks who he met on the bus, who he met on the train. Young, one young lady shot his music video. And she said, I didn't know him from a hole in the wall, but I saw him on the train and his book bag had a hole in it. And I told him my video and, I, and she gave him her book bag. How do these kids make ends meet? How do they make money? How do they survive? Because it certainly can't not just be from the government. Squeegeeing, panhandling, robbing and stealing. That's a part of it doing things, sexual favors for people. Um, any way they can, they're gonna make a dollar. But do they wanna do that? No, they don't wanna do it. So these kids are exploited? Of course, of course. These kids are damaged. Yeah. Through the hardships of life. What, like, it sounds like a war zone. It, it is a war zone. Um, and that's why I show up the way I show up with them. Um, authentically um and i tell people young people know they know who care and they know who don't care they know who just want money to do what they do or they know who just who's in it for the for the gun hole my phone can ring at three o'clock in the morning i'm going to answer it and i'll probably say why are you calling me this late then the young person on the other day say well you picked up <laughs> and that's the kind of conversations we have um 
I have a young man who works at the UPS who didn't know how to get who didn't know how to get there. He had to be to work at 4 a.m. So I get up at 3 a.m. to go make sure he get to work on time. Then he gets up at 9:30. I pick him up, and then his brother has to be to school at 9 o'clock. So I'm taking the brother to school to get him there by 9 o'clock. So he's in the school building and doing what he needs to do. And mom is at home, and she's going through some things. And so mom just recently reached out to me and said, you know, Mr. Lonnie, I, I, I need some services. The boys wanted to invite me in the house a long time ago, and I said no. I said, we, in my world, we do things in decency and in order. When your mother invites me into her home, then I will enter. Until then, if she wants to talk on the porch, we will talk on the porch. It is not your home to invite me into. Do you think at any point along the way these kids ever learn right from wrong? They do. And that's why I have the success stories that I have. You know, um, they are listening. And if they weren't listening, they wouldn't be coming back to me because I, I'm, not, I'm not the nicest guy as far as program well, I don't think they see it that way. But and, I, and, and, and you're they right. Don't they way. don't see it that way, but they, they do. They know right from wrong. They know when they're doing wrong because they'll see, the, they'll see the look on my face. It's like back in the day when your parent just gave you that look and you know what that look meant. I have that relationship with them. You call it homeless children. We call it nomads. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was in um, Nigeria with my brother and lawyer a few years ago. And so we saw these nomads walking across the land. They have no homes. They have no stability. Their home is wherever they pick up. And they move from pillar to post. So seeing that in Africa and experiencing it firsthand, uh, I never would have believed that you would have a situation like this, particularly in Baltimore where we are among children. So you have these children. Um, who you were termed to be homeless. And yet, they move from one school, maybe three weeks, another school, another month later, another school, maybe six months later. Uh, obviously, that would say that the education system has adjusted itself to know that they have this element coming. And whether they stay two or three weeks or a month, they adjust for them to be in the classroom, whether it's math, algebra, whatever it is, they're just for these kids to be in the classroom. And obviously, from our perspective, the school system is getting paid for this. So this is also what we would call ghost kids. Because mm -hmm. once these kids probably leave, the school is still getting paid. So that while the school may benefit, the kids are the ones that burden where they go from zip code to zip code, looking for a home, an infrastructure that gives them stability. So that being said, um, I think the thing that really, in our research, that bothers me, me personally, more than anything else, is that these kids must be passed, grade-wise. You cannot fail these kids. And so if you cannot fail these kids, it's easy sort of to transport these kids through a school system because they don't have to be accountable or responsible. But what happens when these kids be, are no longer in a school system? They're no longer in a structure and they're put out on the streets and they realize that all these systems have failed them. So it goes back to what you stated in Africa, pillow to post, um, which I've heard my grandmother say many, 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 many years ago. Uh, when it comes to young people, they're not responsible for where they are. And when it comes to the school system, if you don't recognize the red flags and you'll just pass them along to get a check and to get numbers, then you're not servicing them either because our youth becomes our adult homeless population. And if you can't solve the youth homeless population, then you'll end up with the adult homeless rate in the city of Baltimore. When do we recognize the red flags to help our young people? Um, and that's where we come in. You know, we come in and we come in on the ground running. 
Um, we take no for an answer. Um, I'm arrogant. I'm in your face. And if it's going to help my young people, that's what we're going to do. You know, you just packed so much in your overview. So let me take you back. I did not know that in the middle of a semester, a kid could just walk in out of nowhere and become part of that classroom experience. You, even some system must accept their credentials, must accept their grades. Um, you have to have ID, birth certificate. All these things must be accepted by a school system before you can even enter the classroom. It's a flawed system. Um, I'm grateful that I was able to go in and help this young person out because now the young person is getting the assistance that they need. And that's only because I'm in the faces of the people that are supposed to be providing the services. But how can a child have any chance of succeeding if he's entering in the middle of the school year, he's staying there three weeks or maybe a month, and they leave to go to another school district? They don't have any chance of succeeding. They don't have any chance. And the school doesn't realize that? I'm sure they realize it. Um, so why do they accept them instead of giving them what they really need? Everything has a dollar value on it. Everything has a dollar value. And I always, I've always stated, you know, kids don't mean anything to anybody. We will do the bare minimum so we can report to the federal government that we're, we're, we're working with the kids in our city to, re to continue receiving funds. But at the end of the day, what are you really doing? I had an 18-year-old who just got out of jail, and I tried to get him back in school only to find out that he was still on the roll in school. Being, school being paid. Right, and he was in jail. So how are you, how are you on the roll and you're not even in, you're in jail? Where are the parents? You keep mentioning the parents, but I'm trying to understand what is your description of parenting with these kids? Parents are dealing with trauma themselves. And so when you're not addressing the trauma that's going on at home and you're just working with one faucet of the family and not the whole family, the whole family can't heal. And that's what most, most parents are operating in survival mode. Yeah, but a child cannot just show up at a school unless somebody called in advance, talked to the administration there, they're aware that this is a kid that's coming, there's an appointment, and they know exactly what this kid's plot is. Who makes the call? The kid doesn't make the call. Well, I made the call for a child and he wasn't my child. Okay. And, and how was... do you decide the school and the structure of that kid's experience while he's in that um, um, school system? I navigate the school. I, I speak to the principals, the assistant principals, the social workers, the guidance counselors. I create a team around that child. And because they know that I'm creating that team, I'm not just leaving him here. I'm coming back. You know, I'm coming back to find out or to ask if y'all did what y'all supposed to do. And I'm checking in with that child every day. I, I take kids to school. But what, what can any kid get out of being in school for three weeks or a month? You I understand what the school gets, but what is it, what is it the child gets? They're not getting anything. They're not getting anything. Um, but a, but a safe space. That's all they're getting is a safe, safe space. space. Is a safe and how, space. How are you defining safe space? If I have nowhere to go during the daytime because I'm transient or I'm, I'm homeless, I can show up at the school building. I can get something to eat, somewhere to stay, mm -hmm. and maybe go in the bathroom and get a, get a nap or, or sleep in the classroom. Or clean up. Yes. Hygiene. I, I think our audience will understand and respect and gladly appreciate what you sacrifice in terms of resources and your time to get these kids to a place of stability. Um, but when the kids are in that safe space, what about their mental health? That's very important. And um, because, people, because um, African-American youth 
identify mental health as being crazy. My goal is to educate them on mental health first and let them know it's okay. You know, we all have a little dysfunction in our families or within ourselves, and we need to seek the kind of help that we need to seek. Getting mental health, um, getting, getting a therapist on mental health does, that mean, does not mean that you need to be put on medication. And it's about having that education first. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation when we started this, we mentioned homelessness. But during the conversation, it was more about parents and the kids going back to a home that probably was not safe. Where does the homelessness piece fit into this with the kids? And are you defining homelessness differently than the way Webster would describe it? Um, well, the federal government describes homeless as being on the street, um, for at least critically homeless, being on the street for three years. You have to be on the streets, couch surfing for at least three years. But what, what do you mean the on be, the street? You sleep there at night? Yeah. You get up there in the morning? Yes. So these kids to have no home? Right. So how are the parents involved in getting them into a school system if they have no home? They're not. Um, they're not, for the most part. And I always say, you know, when young people are showing up at school, it's because they're asking for help. So are the schools now, because of this, the persistency of this problem, do they have a homelessness resource office at these schools now? I won't say a homeless resource office. They have a... a something of its equivalent. Like a liaison. Liaison. And for the organizations that are funded to do the work, I call them to the table. You know, why do I need to turn away a 19-year-old who's stripping at night, who has nowhere to go, and you're telling me that there's nowhere in this city for her to go? Nowhere? So you're saying now that some of these kids are women? Yes, oh, yes. And as, as, as they say, they do some strange things to have a place to stay. Larry Walker, thank you for joining us. Thank you all so much for joining us for this riveting look inside how our children are living. I mean, even though these children may seem like strangers to you, it's only through the grace of God that it's not you and your child and the agony and the despair and the hurt and the pain you would feel knowing that your child was living on the street, living in these dangerous shelters, exposed to the elements, exposed to crime, exposed to drugs. And some of these parents, kids have left home and have never had any contact with them. They have no idea how their kids are living. This could be your child. Thank you so, so much for joining us uh, for this edition. Also find out through your local chapters, your local communities and your churches, whether this problem exists in your communities and how you can step in and make a difference. I'm Armstrong Williams. Thank you for joining us on another episode.